What better time than now to support our favorite local businesses? And for me, it's Bookman's. Bookman's is the local spot for all my book and reading needs, and Bookman's is the sponsor of this episode of Dear Adam Silver. I'm grateful to have this connection with a business I believe in and support whenever I can. It is important now in the pandemic more than ever to shop and spend our money locally and with businesses we care about and trust. Bookman sells used books, records, movies, musical instruments, and more, and is a wonderful community-oriented store where the shelves are stocked with items brought in by members of the community. In addition to shopping, you can also trade your own used items in at Bookman's for cash or store credit. Bookman's has curbside pickup for books ordered ahead of time and for selling in trades. Please visit www.bookmans.com for more information and to find your nearest location. And remember, Bookman's has cool cover. Just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kid. Hello, and welcome back to Dear Adam Silver, a show dedicated to creating and discussing alternative perspectives on sports and art. My name is Abigail Smithson, and as always, I am your host. And my guests today are Jessica Luther and Kavitha Davidson, the co-authors of Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Fan. Jessica is a freelance journalist and writer, and Kavitha is a sports writer. This book is an incredible collection of perspectives and stories for dedicated fans who believe in the ability of sports to evolve and grow as part of our greater culture. From loving your team when you hate the owner, and to an honest, thoughtful conversation about arbitrary controversies around doping, this book explores challenging issues that the invested fan faces. You absolutely hear me gush about this book because I feel very strongly about its relevance to this moment that we are living through as sports fans. And if anyone's looking for a gift for a sports fan they know and love for any upcoming holiday, I definitely recommend this one. So thank you so much to Jessica and Kavitha for coming on. And as always, thank you for listening. And I hope you all enjoy this episode and happy Thanksgiving. Jessica and Kavitha, I just want to thank you so much for for joining me to talk about loving sports when they don't love you back. Dilemmas of the modern fan, such an incredible book to to figure out was being uh, published this year of all years when we have had sports sort of taken away from us as fans and also then uh, brought back to us in this really dramatic, uh, exciting way. Sports have meant so much the past few months on all these different levels. So I just want to thank you both for being here and making this. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah, this is so exciting. So I think I also just want to honor your uh, opening line to the book or, you know, the sort of, um, I'm not sure what the page is called, but it's the page before the contents page where you say this book is dedicated to every fan who loves sports and just wants them to do better. And so I felt very strongly about seeing that written out because it's really uh, all I want is to be able to love sports purely for for the enjoyment and also to to make them better uh and to sort of meet them halfway uh in in that in that uh relationship so i guess where i want to start with um when because i know both of you are sports fans and i'm wondering when there was a shift for you from being a fan to becoming to thinking critically about sports, how they exist, who, the, like what the decisions are that are made around sports that have impact 
populations outside the teams and just all the sort of social issues that are embedded in in all of our sports. I'm just wondering how that transition went from your your time as an innocent fan to to feeling an obligation to respond even to, to what you were seeing play out. And feel free to introduce yourselves as you as you give these first comments. Sure. Um, it's Kavitha here. I would say it's it's a couple of things. The first is um, I took a class in college between my freshman and sophomore years. Um, and it was a graduate school class that I had to petition to be able to take. And it was at the School of Sports Management at Columbia, and it was called the Socio-Historical Foundations of American Sport. And it was basically about how throughout American history, sports history has mattered. Sports history has been a reflection of our country's history. And it's, you know, everything from kind of the more political social things that we're talking about to something like, you know, the specialization of baseball happening at the same time as the specialization of labor during the industrial revolution. So things like that, that I'd never thought about in that way before and just really opened my eyes. And then we did a lot of, you know, a lot of reading about obviously, you know, the civil rights movement and how sports intersected there, the women's rights movement and how sports intersected there. And it really just kind of opened my eyes to that as a possibility. And then I think just, I, I can't really pinpoint a time, like an instance for you, but I think just being a young adult woman sports fan and having the dude at the bar confront you just time and time again about, about what you know, whether you know it, um, and just kind of question your space, your your ability to exist in the space as a sports fan was was just a huge a huge formative thing for me. Realizing that oh, this thing that I grew up loving that I never even thought about me being a girl who likes sports. I was not a girl who played sports really, but a girl who likes sports um, is this kind of unicorn thing. And I think as you get older, and especially as um, as you start to encounter men who see you as sexual objects, right? Um, and don't see you as um, just, you know, whatever, like just who, who see you more as this kind of other thing. That was really, um, that was really like kind of an awakening to me that, oh, I experience sports in a, in a different way than pretty much everyone else does. Yeah, uh, Jessica here. I have a similar where it's like, I can't pinpoint the exact point when I became critical of sports, I can very much remember not being critical of it and just being a college football fan and not want like not wanting to listen to any of it and uh, not letting it invade my my fandom at all. I went to school for a long time to be a historian. And that was really the first time in my life where I was studying like systemic oppression, the way that systems work to put people in certain places and maintain power and all that stuff. And so I had sort of a general life shift in how I saw the world, uh, which just confirms all of my family's worst fears about the, <laughs> the, the way the academy works. Uh, but it really did like make me, I mean, I was writing a dissertation on power and race and bodies and in the English empire before, before I left school. And, and I really just, a lot of that has informed the way that I see sports, but certainly in sort of a real practical way, writing on the, uh, gendered violence within sport, uh, has ruined a lot of sport for me. Um, I feel especially raw right now. I'm in the middle of all of this stuff, uh, with a certain, uh, school. And so I just, I'm feeling it at this point, but I think it was part 
learning how the college football system actually worked and all the stuff that people will do to maintain very specific people with within power that like how little they care about the collateral damage on the edges of that, uh, or even in the center with players. Um, and then seeing how other sports media responds to it and being just deeply shocked that like, I can look at it in this way and really all these men can look at it in this way and we can come to two very different uh, ideas about what has actually happened in here and where blame lies and what we should do about it. Uh, that was very eye-opening for me. And, you know, it's been years now that I've been working on this and I still feel like I'm going through that process over and over again. Um, but yeah, I would say, really when I reported on Baylor in 2015, that was when I really gave up college football. I remember it well because my, our friend, Joel Anderson, I remember so much telling him that I didn't think I could watch football anymore. And he was like, don't let them win. Like, I remember that text message back and forth. And I was like, no man, they won. <laughs> like They won. I don't, I don't want to watch anymore. So it's yeah, it's hard to pinpoint when, but it, then it was just like, it's like I went over off the cliff on it. You're like I can't, you can't go back to, right? Once your eyes are open, you're there sure. you are. It's so interesting also just that there was like a sports metaphor in there. <laughs> like, don't let them win like this, you know, this ongoing game or battle or whatever it is. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the, this cultural sort of disconnect at what is being presented by the other members of the media in relationship to this. Uh, the events at Baylor. Yeah, yeah. And you know what's funny is Joel now, um, he does hang up and listen with Slate. And just this last week, he was talking about how he doesn't enjoy, he's not enjoying watching college football. And I have yet <laughs> to text him to tell him that I heard him say that. Right, follow up. <laughs> yeah, but like, you know, this moment in time in particular has really tested a lot of people's fandom. And And so what brought you two together for this book and how did you choose to work? I mean, I, I guess if there was someone's idea or just how did it, how did this book come to be and exist? Um, so Jessica and I met through Twitter. It's <laughs> <laughs> always, this is how we start this story. Um, Twitter is a cesspool of abuse and uninformed people, but it also can be really nice in bringing disparate people who are actually part of the same community together and the community of women who women in sports media is fairly small but very tight-knit because we've all got very similar challenges and very similar experiences in a lot of ways and Jessica and I, I you know we started reading each other's writing we covered similar things we were like-minded in the way we covered these things and just admired each other and just started communicating through Twitter and um, Jessica can tell the story about how the actual book came about. Yeah, uh, I had a friend years ago now sort of plant the seed, this idea. I think it'd be interesting if you wrote a book about like issues that the contingent sports fan would have. And I was like, yeah, that's a that's a good idea. But it just sort of sat there. And then Kavitha and I, we think it was Super Bowl of 2016 around then everyone is familiar with the kind of article that's written to like the woman who's not a sports fan about like how you're going to survive, how to survive a Super Bowl party, how to talk to your boyfriend about football, like those kind of condescending articles that are fun. Like there are women who need that, right? Like there are plenty of women who don't care about sports. There are men too, I'll just say, that don't care about sports. But uh, it's clear yes, when those... Players. 
Yeah, I'm married to one. Yes, he does. He's not interested. Uh, but it's clear when you see that stuff that Kavitha and I are not imagined as a sports fan, right? We're not this. We're not part of that sports fandom. Uh, the way it's constructed by articles like that. And so originally we were just going to be like, we wanted to write like a snarky response to that. Um, you know, in part because I live with someone who's the, like, we're the exact opposite of what those articles imagine. Uh, and so the thing that we can't really remember is how we went from like wanting to do that to what became like a book proposal at UT press that was as much more serious journalistic endeavor, which hopefully still has some of the snark in it. Uh, but like somehow we, we managed that maneuver within a few months of time. So, um, it's too hard. It's been a long time since that happened. It was, it was a pretty quick pivot from what I remember. I mean, we have an amazing editor and publisher at UT press named Casey, Casey Cottrell, who definitely massaged it into this more serious thing. Um, but it was born out of frustration, really. It was born out of frustration that there isn't a lot of media catered toward fans like me and Jessica. And, and that, you know, we are part of media. We should be creating stuff that speaks to people like us, right? Um, and just the idea that, sure, I mean, there are women who need pieces like that, as there are men, it doesn't, that's, that was the only thing. And I, I don't know if everybody quite remembers, but there was a time in like the mid 2010s when all of the sports blogs, and there were a lot more of them than there are now, would, I mean, every single one every day would have, you know, the hottest female athlete, the hottest wife and girl, the wives and girlfriends, that kind of thing. Everything was tabloid fodder for male sports fans. And now we only have one or two of those sites um, yeah. that happen to make a lot of money. Heterosexual male sports fans, yeah. like real specific. Yeah. But but everything is always catered to them. So, I, you know, we that that being the seed of the kind of immediate reaction, snarky response, you can still see that in every in every chapter, because every chapter aims to talk to a broader base of sports fan than has always been catered to. Right. And I'm wondering, because this book feels both personal and that you are hoping by sort of sharing your own personal stories, hoping feel to speak to a wider audience. And it also feels, you know, we have historical facts and it's rooted in history. And then also it is very of this moment that we're in right now with especially at the end when, you know, Kavitha, you talk about what what Kobe Bryant's death meant to you um, and, and during this period of time. And of course, there's so many things. It's so interesting reading this book as things are still happening in 2020. I mean, it's such a trip, like reading about, you know, things as they're unfolding, as I'm also living them. It's a trip publishing this book. I bet. <laughs> we, like Kavitha's, yeah, we, we were convinced so the way that book publishing works is there's a point when you can know, like it goes to print and that's the point when like nothing can change. This is the version that will go out into the world. And that happened for us the week after the NBA shut down because of COVID. And so at that point we were basically told you can't even add like to add a period to a sentence was like a big deal because everything had been laid out on the page. Uh, and we had like a panic, we were in panic mode uh, the day after the NBA shut down not understanding where sports would be in on September 1st of 2020, uh, if, if we would be speaking to the past and not to the future, we had no idea like what sports was going to look like on the other side. Uh, and also just worry about like being deeply insensitive as 
you know, we didn't sort of know where the pandemic itself would actually be. And if like, who wants to talk about sports? Like we thought no one would be talking about sports, <laughs> that that was a real possibility. So it's been a right. real trip for us, for people to say that like it's of the moment and it's a huge personal relief, I guess, uh, that we did write something. That was the goal, right? To write something that would stand the test of time. Um, and there's only one, I think there's one thing that's old, which was the Washington NFL team changed its name, but that was something we wanted to happen. So it's why it's every time we hear someone say that, we just think that's hilarious because <laughs> we were just so worried. Right. I mean, it was just, I think it was, it was so powerful to read about, the, I mean, that chapter knowing what has already happened, you know, just like as far as these efforts that have been made. And that was one of the first, um, I mean, I'm not sure actually where I can put it, but just this summer when all of the protests started and everything was happening, I feel like in Nike pulling down the um, Washington football team's uh, uniforms and things like that, like that had their logo on it. It just uh, it happened really fast for having not happened for so long. And it was just uh, there's small things like that that sometimes make me feel like much bigger things could also happen along the way, too. I mean, just, you know. Yeah, the, the change we want to see is possible, and they show it to us, and then they tell us it's impossible, even after they show it to us. In this particular case also, it was just, it's we're all very happy it happened, but it is a little bit of a slap in the face that it did happen so easily because we had been told for years how difficult it would be to rebrand and to get a new logo and to get a new trademark and all of this. And yes, it's going to be, they're going to be named the Washington football team until at least next year because of trademark considerations. But frankly, that's his own damn fault. Um, he had a bunch of trademarks that he let expire because he didn't think he would ever have to change this name. Um, but it really wasn't all that hard, right? Once, once sponsors started to sure. pull their dollars, he found the ease by which he could do this. And the, he is Dan Snyder, owner of the team, um, really, really, really quickly. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's like when there's, when you're losing money because of something that everything becomes very simple the decisions become much easier to make which is you know a, a problem that is not just tied to sports like you know within our society unfortunately i feel so um oh the, so this book is divided up into very thoughtfully laid out parts and i'm just wondering if there's one that you feel the most each of you feel the most strongly about like one chapter and also, uh, if there's one that you like learned the most from researching, I know that you know, like through the process of reading more about these events and and situations, that there's just this opportunity to also get to to learn more. And I'm just wondering if there was just one that was particularly particularly giving in that way. And I just want to read some of the chapter um, chapters that we have. So. Uh, watching football when we know even a little about brain trauma, forgiving the doper you love, cheering for a team with a racist mascot, embracing tennis despite its inequities, coping when the sports you love are anti-LGBTQ+. So I'm just wondering, that that's just a few of many chapters. I'm just wondering if there's a particular one that, that just gave you a lot to work with and, and was really enriching. Um, one of the chapters that I learned the most about... Um that I thought I knew a lot about was definitely the Olympics chapter. Um, 
and this is one that Jessica and I both feel very personally because we both love the Olympics. Um, and we've both done a lot of writing and a lot of research. And I have a financial uh, background, a financial journalism background. I was a sports business reporter by trade. So I, I knew all of the, how the Olympics devastate the host city stuff, right? Like that's all stuff that I, I was pretty solid on. I did not know about the militarization of the of the local police department. And that is a huge thing that we are not talking enough about that we need to talk about ahead of LA. Um, that scares the crap out of me having just lived in LA for a year and knowing what we know about the LAPD. So that was a real eye-opener to me. Um, again, for an issue that I thought, I mean, I already thought that I knew all the reasons why the Olympics were bad. And then there was a whole other host of reasons um, <laughs> for why they were bad. Um, the chapter that, I mean, that I think means the most to me is probably the one about gendered violence, because this is one that, um, you know, Jessica and I both feel, again, very personally, I myself am a, sexu am a sexual assault survivor, and some of the, um, some of the teams and the players that we discuss in that chapter are players like I am a Yankees fan. I have had exactly this dilemma about Aroldis Chapman. I have the same anger that the Yankee fan that we interviewed for this chapter has. Um, so in very many ways, I was looking to her for what her strategies are um, so that I could apply that to my own fandom and then to everyone else that that we interviewed as well um, for that for that chapter. So I think I think those are probably the two that that stick out to me. I would say like working with Kavitha on this was great because she does bring this economics background that I don't have. I don't have that bone in my body. I don't have that part of my brain. And so uh, the baseball free market chapter, I don't think I couldn't even repeat that chapter to you right now. Like that is straight out of Kavitha's very smart head. Uh, and I remember every time I would read it, because we read this book a lot, uh, I would be like, oh yeah, that's so smart. <laughs> uh, I had I knew more about <laughs> stadium tax subsidy stuff, but still, even reading that, the way that Kavitha leads it out, I didn't know anything about Minnesota, which is such a fascinating um, example of how all this stuff plays out. I will say, for me personally, uh, researching the doping chapter, uh, poor Kavitha's heard me talk about this a lot, uh, and then I I, I co-host a podcast with a bunch of women, and they got real tired of me constantly being like, we got to talk about doping, because I became like obsessed with it. I went into the research for that chapter thinking that I understood that I that it was black and white, and I felt very righteous about the idea that like people dope and they should be in trouble because that's cheating and you can't cheat in sports. And da -da. And then as soon as I started researching it, I was like, what is doping? <laughs> Who's deciding? Who gets punished? How are they punished? Like all these things are actually incredibly arbitrary. And it's really hard to feel all that righteousness once you dig down in any way. Like the one that I always bring up was that uh, when I was researching Balco, my understanding about this outfit out of San Francisco is all baseball players. Like all I knew going in was it was a bunch of baseball players doping and then found out there were also a bunch of football players. And it's not that the media didn't report on it because I know that because the media reported on it, it just wasn't flashy in the same way. Like they're not doing like congressional hearings around it. Like fans didn't respond to it in the same way. And it just shows you like which sports we care about doping in what people have to look like for us to care. Um, we definitely care more when it's people of color doing it. Well, I guess, except in football, right? When it's violent and we sort of accept it. Um, so it's just so, 
I don't know. I still, to this day, anytime a doping story comes up, someone and one of my co-hosts will like send me the story. They'll be like, oh no, Jessica wants to talk about this again. But I do think it's like so fundamental to how we think about sports. Like we, there's a winner and a loser and it's clear. And most of the time, once you start digging at all, you find out that inequity in sport is just rampant in all sorts of ways. And speaking about how arbitrary, how arbitrary what constitutes doping can be, Jessica has a great line right. somewhere in the book that we say in a lot of these interviews, and it's that sports are made up. It's in that like chapter. That's when it came up. Yeah, it's in that chapter, and that's exactly that's why that's why that triggered my my memory there. But sports are made up. We love these things. It doesn't make them less important, but they really are just made up things, and we need to accept that there is no. Bible or, you know, Holy Grail or something set in stone that there are no fossils of baseball, of, of sports, right? There's nothing to say that this is how things have always been. Um, and this is a complete side note, but along those lines, um, you know, when we say like, for example, in baseball, there's a whole debate over the universal designated hitter, the universal DH, right? And the term that is brought up all the time is a universal DH would be an abomination. And I wrote this column when I was at Bloomberg that was like a 1500 word thing about how it was called God doesn't hate the designated hitter. <laughs> it was about how <laughs> it was it was about how like arguing for the universal DH. But the whole thing was an allegory for marriage equality because it was focused on the word abomination because we use the word abomination to confer some kind of moral judgment. And I consulted biblical scholars because people also use that word to talk about marriage equality. And the word abomination just means ritualistically improper. It just means this is not how we have always done things. So what we can apply that ridiculous side note to the rest of the book to all of these issues that we're talking about is because sports are made up it is okay if making them better is done so in a way that is not how we've always done them that is literally just how progress works and I think that's what we're trying to get at in this book so it's done so effectively and I think especially in that doping chapter because I I of course watched the ESPN doc uh this uh what was it called? The summer. The I forget, but it was about Mark McGuire. The Boys of Summer about Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. I think it was in June. And then I just read Hank Aaron's uh, uh, biography of Hank Aaron by uh, Howard Bryan. And he was talking so much at the end about Barry Bonds breaking Hank Aaron's record and how that was, you know, uh, Hank Aaron was uncomfortable or seemed <laughs> uncomfortable with that because of the, the doping. And then, I mean, also just all of this information and and this is really like the first the first sort of well laid out essay or chapter that has made me, that has put that in perspective of like it's there's there's grayness here it's not black and white it's really this is a what is doping and how do we define that and 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 all these things it's just really interesting yeah and i think it's important in this particular moment because we're seeing the institutional response to Castor Semenya, which is to punish her for the body she was born with. And very much the narrative around doping is is being mapped onto her, right? Even though it's her body. But we have such a set narrative that's so easy. And as soon as you call into question, right, like these these things, then there's no more discussion to have. But she doesn't fit. Uh 
but and so it's like really important that we are unpacking these things because it is marginalized people often that are getting these things are being used against them in deeply unfair ways and so i it's hard because i'm not against the idea that like people can cheat and they can certainly take drugs that are harmful to them and i'm not like here to say that people should be able to just do whatever they want and harm their bodies all the time and blah 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 um but we do need to be less i guess righteous is the word like we need to at least as you said sort of embrace the gray which is kind of kavitha and i talk about this all the time like that's kind of the point of the book too like everything is pretty gray uh, around these issues and part of how you deal with them is you just sit in in the uncomfortable uh but i do think we have to be aware that the narratives around doping are used against very particular uh, populations, especially intersex and, and trans athletes in ways that are just to exclude them from sport. And, and so if we're gonna, if we're gonna be okay with all of that, that's part of what we're okay with is, is participating in that exclusion. Yeah. And, and I think even just this, you know, this pushing back on the word abomination or how it's normally used and just the recontextualizing of some of these ideas, it's just, it's really powerful in a sense, to kind of represent them and to, to use, because abomination is one of those words that's used, and that's like the end of the discussion, like you're saying, Jessica, it's like, oh, it's abomination, this is over, you know, rather than it being, rather than the conversation being opened up for more dialogue and better understanding. So I really want to read that article, <laughs> Again, it is called God Doesn't Hate the Designated Hitter. Right. <laughs> so great. So I also want to chime in that my... One of my favorite chapters was the one with all these, um, uh, it is called Consuming Sports Media, Even If You Don't Look Like the People on TV. And I just, I feel like so many people that are quoted in that chapter that you have, it's like, I'm going to think about those when I wake up in the morning and I'm like, who listens to my podcast and what is my place in the sports world and all this stuff, just this idea that of, of kind of like making your own way, even when it doesn't feel that it's totally uh, open to you. It just was very, that was really exciting presentation to have all those different journalists of different backgrounds, different races, just coming at sports from all these different perspectives. It felt so celebratory in that way. That makes me very happy. Uh, yeah, we wanted to, that's that chapter is so different than all of them, right? It sort of functions as an oral history. Like There's an intro, but then we kind of hand the chapter over to a bunch of people. And, the, and that was the point, right? Like, Sports media is the worst when it comes to diversity, like media in general has a long way to go. Sports media really has a long way to go, um, which like sports are incredibly important in our society. So it matters deeply that that it is so bad. Uh, but at the same time, there are all these people out there doing the work. And it just seemed really important to to put it in that way rather than just continually pointing to all the white men who are in charge. Um, I get tired of talking about them. Uh, I feel like I talk about them too much. Uh, yeah, they're because... also tired of listening to them. <laughs> yeah, yes. And so we wanted to show people like, one, that all these non-white, non-dudes, whatever, like that they don't all necessarily have the same message. They don't all come away from this experience with the same points of view either. Like we're a huge group of people. And that's, that's the point. Like sports media is so much better when it's diverse. Like it's just a much more interesting place to be. Stories are much more interesting. Uh, and yeah, sort of kickstart people into finding all those other voices. Like there are people out here doing this work. Um, sometimes you do have to work a little harder to find them. Uh, but also when you do like 
let them know, let their editors know, like give them, um, send them some uh, encouragement. It's very helpful. Well, and that chapter is right in the middle of the book. Um, and it, it's because every other chapter, I mean, listen, we talk, we started this conversation talking about the frustration of not having media that catered to fans who look like us. The reason is because we don't have media who look like us running, running the show, right? Um, it matters who is telling the stories because it matters how the stories are told. It matters which stories are being told and it matters which stories are being promoted and elevated and, and, and which fans are being catered to, which readers are being catered to as well. So, you know, every, everything that we discuss in this book can be, can be sought, can be, can be looked at through the lens of not having enough diversity of coverage and enough people from diverse backgrounds telling those stories. If we had an indigenous person who is the sports editor of a major publication, it most likely would not have taken this long to change the name of the Washington football team, you know, that kind of thing. So I do, I appreciate, we've gotten a lot of great feedback on that chapter. And, um, you know, I appreciate that because that chapter is so important for fixing all of these things. Sure. And even just, I mean, I was thinking about it with the chapter, like the loving sports media when it doesn't love you back. <laughs> like that's, I, I mean, it, even though it's a complicated relationship, I still often listen to people who I feel like are part of the problem. Like I still listen to their takes on things, even though I find that overall they're not uh, pushing us forward. Like you were talking about progress in the, in this world. And so I feel like as someone who's kind of um, established, tried to establish their own voice in sports media, it is, uh, this chapter really stood out. And I feel like a lot of my thoughts right now are about loving sports media when it's not quite loving me back yet. So it's just really, yeah, it's a good one. You know, I think you're also reacting. I mean, a lot of those people get to set the narrative. So the thing you're operating against all the time, like one of the things I talk about when you do gendered violence stuff, especially at major college institutions or any, any institution, uh, is you're working against the idea that the coach is a good guy. That simply because he's gone into coaching, therefore he is a good guy. And that is our starting point. And I feel like that's probably a gendered idea about these people. Uh, you know, there's all these ideas about good masculinity that are baked into that. Uh, and so, yeah, it's like you, you have to pay attention to them because they're setting the narrative that if you're going to come along, you're going to have to operate against that. You're go like your starting point is set by them. And then you can enter into the conversation from wherever they have, have started it at. And that is endlessly frustrating. Um, but yeah, we're all stuck with them for now. So I, I totally feel I get that feeling of like, oh, I can't believe I'm reading this person again. But also I need to know what they said. So here I am consuming it. Yeah. Right. It's just, you know, like you want to watch the game, even though you have a problem with the game to see what happens. So you can say something about the game. It's also nice to know what other people are saying about things, you know, so it's just it's part of the research. And it, yeah, like you said, it's just can't avoid it at the moment. <laughs> um, it's like listening to John McEnroe when I watch tennis. Sure. Like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> I was so excited when you mentioned Claudia Rankin in the book, just because she is a, a hero of mine in many ways as someone who uses the arts as a way to address issues in sports. She, it just um, it was great to see her as a part of this. And Citizen is like a book that comes up a lot for me uh, to reread and discuss. And it's just, uh, yeah, she's incredible. 
maybe the the uh, anti John McEnroe in some way, <laughs> the alternative, <laughs> the the future. Um, so I'm also curious about your fan, like the fans that you interview of these different teams who have conflicted feelings about their teams um, and are not, you know, we the the fan who is the Clippers. Uh, who's a fan of the Clippers, and and he has a really hard time with Donald Sterling long before uh, those uh, racist remarks were released and all that stuff happened. And just how did you find these these critical thinking fans who were sort of taking action or just had these had these responses to their their team's issues? Um, for me, I mean, a, a lot a lot of the fans that we interviewed um, came from both my personal and professional circles. Some, I mean, I was actually very concerned that the book would have too much of a New York bias um, because a lot of the, you know, there's, there's, I interview a Knicks fan um, in, in the, in the loving your team when you hate your owners chapter. I interview a Yankees and a Mets fan in the um, gendered violence chapter, you know, because these are the teams that I know. And I also know these fans who have had these dilemmas before. And then from the professional circles, I mean, just in doing our work for the last several years, Jessica and I have definitely come across men and women who um, who who occupy this this space, who have these same dilemmas. Um, and a couple of them, I just put out a call on Twitter, frankly. <laughs> um, and and I, you know, and and that's I think that's actually how I found um, the Clippers fan. For other fans, you know, I would ask friends that I had, you know, I, I didn't know a Ravens fan, for example, can you give me, do you know a Ravens fan to interview about Ray Rice, that kind of thing. Um, it was a little bit of a hodgepodge of a process for me. This makes me think a little bit about um, some of the athletes that we interviewed because athletes are often fans of the very sport. And so I'm thinking about like Lawrence, I talked to for the Olympics chapter. He was a fencer for Great Britain. Um who has been very outspoken. He knows Jules Boykoff and they sort of work together. And, um, and so like, it, they're interesting because they're literally participating, right? Like they're actually in it. And so like Amani McGee Stafford in the WNBA chapter, she gave us a remarkable quote about how the WNBA is like, what was it like? And you know, when you have to, you buy a new pair of scissors, but you need the scissors yeah. to cut. Yeah. To cut the scissors out. Yeah. That was so good. Yeah, I like, like put circle. the book down for a minute. I was like, this is a great, like, what other things can I apply this to? <laughs> I know. When she said it, I was just like, man, you know, like as an interviewer, as you know, like when someone says the golden sentence and you're just like, oh, thank you. When she said that, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm so thinking can we about. Actually, can we explain that sentence a little bit more just because I realized that people might be listening to this who haven't read the book? Yeah, sure. So Amani is talking about the struggle of women's sports and like, how do you get attention for women's sports? And you get this sort of infinite cycle of like, there should be more media on it. And then people are like, well, there's not enough audience. And it's like, well, the audience will build if you have the media. And like, you just do this, like everything around women's sports is kind of this chicken egg thing constantly, just over and over again. And you can never win, right? That's the point. It's a conversation that no one can ever win because they don't actually want anyone to win it. And so she compares this to like buying a pair of scissors and needing scissors to open it. Like that, the feeling of frustration when you realize that the very thing you need is inside the plastic that you need to use it, like that the tool itself is encased in plastic and you can't get to it. Um, it's just brilliant. But yeah, so thinking like, 
you know, talking to athletes was really fascinating because, and like talking, or we mentioned Joel before talking to Joel about being a football player and how he feels about brain trauma moving forward in his life. Like it is interesting to talk to people who are just right in it, um, who literally participated in the, in the stuff that we are struggling to figure out and they don't have answers necessarily either, which is on some level comforting. Yeah, no, that that was also I mean, just I think the interviewing of the fans and the players gave it again, this like very personal. It was it was just giving all those details, this very specific home, you know, all the all the things you might hear about in an abstract sense. Uh, and it's just also so interesting because the WNBA's numbers, after all the statistics that were included in the chapter, they went up this year during the pandemic and and all of these things. It's just, again, this year and, and reading it, the book during this time and hearing all this first person narratives. Uh, I mean, to Imani's point, you put women's sports on TV and people watch women's sports. Mind blowing. I know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and there will be people yeah. in the future scratching their head like, how do we do it? Like, it's amazing how people just can't take this stuff sure. in. Misogyny is quite a blinder, I guess. And I, I guess, yeah, like the can't or we can't do this because of that. Like, there's so many, so many walls get put up around uh, to kind of exclude all of these possibilities for, for growth and change. So I'm wondering what you all think, uh, let's see, is the, so what you might think is the role, the responsibility of the modern fan, if there is one. Um, and I know that that extends maybe beyond into being a citizen. I mean, I like to think that like my my ideas as a citizen don't stop when I'm watching a basketball game or watching a football game that I'm still thinking that way. But I'm just wondering, um, what is the responsibility of the modern fan? I mean, I, again, nothing is black and white and sports are a place to go for enjoyment and excitement and, and things that might not cross over with, with other issues. But just uh, how can... How can fans? Well, well, I'll start and then I'm going to pass it to Kavitha because she's really good on this question. But I just want to say, like, one of the big struggles of this book and this issue in general is that, like, we're tackling huge systemic issues. And it's always weird on some level to ask individuals to change their individual behavior in order to change a system because it's just not that simple. Right. And so part of this is like, fans should do what makes them feel the most comfortable. And if that's like you stop watching altogether, then good for you. If it's that you watch and you just feel bad about it, like that's okay too. Like there's all kinds of, there's a spectrum here. And in, in reality, in a lot of ways, it takes a lot of us all together in order to really change the things that we want to change because they're so deeply ingrained and because they're systemic. Um, so I just want to make sure that it's so hard. Like the secret of the book, well, not a secret because it was, <laughs> it was <laughs> originally called how to love sports. They don't love you back. And then we got rid of the how to, because it's too hard to tell everyone how to do, how to fix all of this stuff. There's sure. some chapters that are more how than others. Um, but it's, that's incredibly difficult work. Yeah. I mean, we, there's no singular solution. There's no singular thing any fan can do to fix all of these things. But I will say a couple of things. One is that we really wanted to get across in this book that athletes are workers, that they are laborers, that they are not just 
you know, animals who dance for our entertainment um, because they they have nothing else to do. And and I think as fans, we are incredibly entitled um, when it comes to athlete labor. And part of it is because they make a lot more money than we ever will. But in the relationship of labor versus management, of player versus owner, they are labor. They are us. Um, and we need to recognize that we have more in common with them than we do with the people who pay them their paychecks. Um, so recognizing that they're workers, recognizing that athletes are whole human beings, that they don't just stop being black men and women when they step onto a court um, and that they have the right to exist in all of that existence and all of that experience, especially in America and what all of that means. Um, and if that makes us uncomfortable, it probably should make us uncomfortable. Um, and that's part of that's part of the that's part of a contract that we sign here. We don't get, we don't just get to watch these guys and women play and and entertain us with these incredible feats that they that they accomplish with while while telling them to go away for the things that make us uncomfortable and that make us kind of make um make us more introspective about what role we've all kind of played in the things that are making them their lives harder. And then the last thing I'll say is to go with the the fan as citizen thing. I mean, it would just actually be really great if every fan really did vote in their own interest <laughs> and their own interest, whether whether that means that they're going to turn off the TV when Black Lives Matter messaging comes on, that might be the case. But the fact of the matter is, as fans, when we look at fans, um, especially our relationship with ownership and with teams and leagues, we don't vote in our own interest. We let these teams and leagues take advantage of us so much because of what sports mean to us. And we dissect how sports are such a part of our identity and they're part of our formative years in the book. But because of all of that, because we have this emotional connection, we act irrationally on our fandom instead of in our own best interest. The example that I always give is, you know, when the, before the NFL finally did move back to LA, the threat of an LA stadium being there existed solely to scare other fan bases into giving up their taxpayer dollars for a new stadium for their team. And if you interviewed fans of those teams, they would always tell you, I know this is dumb. I know we just cut our, our, our school budget system. I know that this is bad for our city in the long run, but I just can't stand the thought of my team of my team leaving me and the fact of the matter is that team was never really going to leave you so i think if we all acted in our own best interest it would actually serve to fix some of these things institutionally and then the last thing you know we 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 always talk about being kinder to ourselves being kinder to other fans to to yourself as a fan because you won't know exactly how to fix all of these things. And like Jessica said, sometimes just sitting with the fact that these things make you uncomfortable is enough and is enough of a conversation starter to further that, that you know, to further the conversation toward action, but also being kinder to others who might not experience this in the same way you do. And that can work both ways. You know, if I'm at a bar, whenever we're allowed to do that again, um, and and there is a fan who, who doesn't care that Ben Roethlisberger has been credibly accused of rape twice, then all right, I don't need to engage that conversation further. I don't need to make that person feel bad about that. But the other side of that is if someone is sitting in, in, in a room and is having a real you know, moral dilemma, a real quandary about what they're watching, 
don't tell them that they are less of a fan or that they don't love or understand these games or that, you know, they only exist to take the fun out of it, right? Like we all need to be able to exist in our respective fandoms together. And that's, I think, probably the most important and immediate thing we can all do. Yeah, that's a really beautiful thought and and sort of offering that you know we all we all uh respect the way that each person you know sort of interacts and, and cares and invests in in these games and it can mean different things to different people so thank you for for bringing it home with that <laughs> great well those are my those are my questions i feel like it's this is just a, a book that I uh, will be, I mean, I, f- I feel so grateful to get to share it on my podcast. And also I just know, know people that I'm going to like reach out to individually to let them know if they don't already about it, because there's this whole world, as I've discovered, of like people who really give a shit about holding, changing, holding sports accountable, whatever it is that like just want to invest themselves in, in the idea that, that sports can do better. And it's just, um, it's a very inspirational thing. They can. We wouldn't have written this book if we didn't believe, if we didn't sure. love sports, first of all. And if we didn't. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was like, let's try yes. to tell them that we love sports. We're huge Absolutely. sports fans. No, no, no. I totally got, I mean, I, of course I got that from the book. And yes, that is like the, that's, that's where this comes from. I mean, I think that like you can't, you can't, you can critique something so much with so much more credibility when you care about it, when you love it. You can make such uh, more durable. Uh, critiques of it because you want it to be better and it's just uh, that is a part of this book so thank you ladies for for coming on and sharing all that went into this and all that uh, is here now in my hands and a deflated basketball <laughs> on the front well thank you for having us thank you so much. I know the cover is so good that's all you teach press <laughs> and then if you take Kavitha realize this if you take the actual cover off the book itself is binded in orange basketball if you take so like, like the actual part binding. of it off the actual binding is basketball oh, leather <laughs> yes isn't that a beautiful <laughs> ut press really brought it they did such that a good so job the book is so when i saw basketball I, mean, <laughs> I didn't understand like kavitha texted and i was like what? And I had to go like get the book. I was I'm like, my husband was talking to me and I was like, excuse me, I need to go get the book. Like I interrupted him. (laughs) So I was like, what? Gosh, it's so good. That's such a nice um, touch. I don't even know if I would have made the connection that it was real basketball leather, even even if I had taken the sleeve off. So I'm so glad that this was like a live uncovering. I know no one listening can see what I'm seeing right now. But if you get the book, you can uh, take that cover part off of the and podcast and, and take your cover off because, wow, it's so exciting. It's a basketball. It's like it's a basketball. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for for coming on. We'll talk soon. Take Great. care. Stay safe. Bye. 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 <laughs> nice closet, Kavita. I'm excited for you. Bye. <laughs> Bye, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>